From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Rob Schmitz. Good morning. As the war in Gaza rages on, we visit a school where Jewish and Palestinian students learn about each other. Also this hour, starting tomorrow, the first day of the new year, nearly 10 million Americans will see a bump in their pay as several states raise their minimum wage. And as 2023 comes to a close, we visit a country where voters turned out in record numbers and showed the world that democracy can prevail over autocracy. We will be as poor as we are now, but we will have rights. It's Sunday, December 31st, the final day of 2023. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Schiavone. Israel's prime minister says governments that criticize his country's fight against Hamas are, quote, blowing hot air. Benjamin Netanyahu is declaring the war will likely continue for many months until Hamas is destroyed. NPR's Kerry Khan reports from Tel Aviv. Netanyahu reiterated his resolve to continue fighting despite mounting international pressure on Israel to limit the heavy death toll in Gaza. Gaza health officials say more than 21,000 Palestinians have died since the start of the war more than 12 weeks ago. Netanyahu specifically criticized South Africa, which filed a case in the UN's top court accusing Israel of genocide against Palestinians. No South Africa, he said Sunday morning. It's not we who have come to perpetrate genocide. It is Hamas. It would murder all of us if it could, he added. Israel says Hamas is using civilians as human shields. Hamas officials say Israel is indiscriminately killing civilians and blocking aid and vital medical care to the desperate population. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The U.S. military says one of its warships in the Red Sea has destroyed two ballistic missiles fired by Houthi-controlled Yemen. The destroyer was responding to reports that a container ship had been struck in the vital shipping lane, the first since an international patrol was launched almost two weeks ago. The BBC's Shaima Khalil reports. The U.S. warship shot down two ballistic missiles fired from Houthi-controlled Yemen while responding to calls for help from the Danish shipping company Maersk. There were no reported injuries. Maersk said this week that it was preparing to resume using the Red Sea after diverting to the much longer route around the Cape of Good Hope because of recent Houthi attacks on shipping. The Red Sea is one of the world's most important routes for oil and liquefied natural gas shipment, and analysts have warned that the attacks could see a rise in prices. In Israel, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in a televised address that the army was fighting on all fronts in Gaza, as well as the northern border with Lebanon, where Israeli forces are continuing to strike Hezbollah targets. The BBC's Shaima Khalil reporting. California workers will have at least five days of paid sick leave starting in the new year. LAS Jackie Fortier has more. Starting January 1st, paid sick leave will go up from a guaranteed three days to five in California. Governor Gavin Newsom signed an expansion of the state's policy into law in October, though it falls short of the seven days sought in the original bill. In 2014, California was among the first states to make paid sick days mandatory, but it now trails 14 states and Washington, D.C. in the amount of time given. The United States is one of six countries with no national paid leave requirement. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. This is NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston's annual first night celebrations kick off at 11 this morning. The free event will be based at City Hall Plaza instead of Copley Square for the first time in its 49-year history. WBUR's Amelia Mason reports. Construction in Copley Square prompted the move to the newly renovated City Hall Plaza, where visitors can see ice sculptures of major Boston landmarks and enjoy musical entertainment. Other free events will unfold on the Common, the Greenway, Columbus Park, and at Improv Asylum in the North End. At a press conference, First Night organizer Dusty Rhodes touted the family-friendly event, the first of its kind in the nation. People keep asking me, what is your favorite part of First Night? The strollers, seeing the little kids with their little twinkly decorations on their hair and on their face and just watching the joy that comes. Fireworks are planned for 7 p.m. on the Common and midnight at City Hall Plaza. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. One of Boston's biggest challenges heading into 2024 is a shortage of police officers. That's according to City Council President Ed Flynn. He shared his concerns in a press conference yesterday, sharing the state of the city council. Flynn says Boston's police department is down about 400 to 500 officers. Most of our police officers now are working 16 hours a day consistently for four or five days a week. That's unhealthy for a city. It's unhealthy for an officer and his or her family. And that's when mistakes are made. But it's critical that we hire more police officers. Recently released data from the Boston Police Department show that nearly all violent crimes, including shootings, are down year over year in the city. A Stoughton Pizza Institution is closing its doors today. Danino's has been in the family for 68 years. This past week, customers have been waiting in line for hours to get one last Danino's pizza. It is 36 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today with highs in the upper 30s. For New Year's Eve, increasing clouds and lows overnight in the upper 20s. New Year's Day, tomorrow mostly sunny, Monday's highs in the mid-30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. Aisha Roscoe is off for the New Year's holiday. The saying goes, out with the old and in with the new. But there are issues in the news that will very much carry over into 2024. Some of the most pressing at the moment are at the border and what may or may not end up on the ballot. Here for more is NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Good morning, Franco. Good morning, Rob. So, Franco, as we at NPR have been reporting, authorities at the southern border are intercepting thousands of migrants a day. December crossings were at their highest in 23 years. What is the Biden administration doing about this? Yeah, he's under a lot of pressure, including from some big city Democratic mayors. I mean, you add to all that, there's a large caravan of migrants making their way towards the U.S. Now, Biden just sent his secretary of state, Anthony Blinken, and other top officials to Mexico just this week to meet with President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador to talk about the issues and see what can be done from the other side of the border. But Lopez Obrador has his own issues and big concerns with U.S. policy himself. You know, it's all just really complicated, and Biden has limited options without more help from Congress. You know, so that brings us to some negotiations that are now happening in the Senate. 
What does your reporting tell us is on the table here? Are we talking about comprehensive immigration reform or, or more limited measures? Yeah, we're definitely not talking about <laughs> comprehensive immigration reform, which would include some form of legalization for those here illegally. Instead, the conversations are focused on border security and making it harder to apply for asylum. And that has really raised concerns with advocates and elected Latino leaders of the Democratic Party who are warning of political consequences for Biden. Rob, you know this part very well. The border issue is tangled in Biden's efforts to get more aid to Ukraine and right. stop Russia from threatening more of Europe. But Republicans are holding the money up for Ukraine in order to squeeze Biden into taking more dramatic steps on the U.S. border. And I was talking yesterday with Douglas Rivlin. He's a veteran of immigration battles on Capitol Hill and now works for the advocacy group America's Voice. You know, he says Biden risks losing on both issues because Republicans have little incentive to compromise. Biden is approaching this from the point of view of bipartisanism, where both sides want to solve problems. And uh, that's just not the case right now. Republicans don't want to solve this problem. They don't want to solve the problem of funding Ukraine, and they don't want to solve the problem of people coming to the border and having no legal way of doing it. Both of those are problems they see as uh, good for them politically. And a number of Republicans have been pushing to end funding to Ukraine. And Rivlin notes that several also see the border as a way to stoke their base. And Biden has to think about his own base as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nearly 2024 where we've got an election year before us. And one of the big questions as we're about to enter this new year is, will Donald Trump literally be on the ballot? Right. <laughs> Maine became the second state, actually, to disqualify Trump from the ballot. Colorado, of course, was first. The main secretary of state, Shanna Bello, said she had an obligation to act because of Trump's actions in that insurrection on January 6th. But Republicans are pushing back, particularly the Trump campaign, calling it an attempted theft of an election. So you got Colorado, you got Maine, but then Michigan, the Michigan Supreme Court, went the other way mm -hmm. and rejected an effort to remove Trump from the state's ballot. So we've got the Michigan Supreme Court, Colorado Supreme Court. How about the U.S. Supreme Court? <laughs> yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be thrust into all this, into a very uncomfortable role of ruling on key aspects of the presidential election. I mean, the case has already drawn comparisons to the 2000 election when the high court was called in to settle that election in yeah. favor of President George W. Bush over Al Gore. I mean, remember the hanging chats? Oh, yes. I mean, confidence in the Supreme Court right now is already really low. And like in that case, whatever the decision, you know, a large chunk of the population is going to be very angry and see politics at play. And Rob, it all just adds up to the already existing tensions across the country over the rule of law, elections and democracy. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez, who has a very big year ahead of him. Franco, thank you. Thank you, Rob. We now take you to a school in Jerusalem where teachers try to keep Palestinian and Jewish students focused on their studies and maybe learn to understand each other a little more. They do this despite the intense fear and anger as the war in Gaza and violence in the West Bank continue. It's one of the rare schools where Israeli Jews and Palestinians share the same classrooms. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley made a visit. The sound of Hebrew and Arabic being spoken together in a school hallway is not common in Israel, unless you're on the campus of Hand in Hand. 
So, welcome. This is our Jerusalem campus. That's Noor Yunus, donor relations manager for the school. She didn't go here and says she made her first Jewish acquaintance at the age of 19 in college. Also, we grew up with stereotypes about the other. You know, uh, this is the enemy, this is that. We don't know anything about each other. And the first confrontation with each other, sometimes we don't know how to even talk to each other, you know, when you get to that certain age. In 1998, a group of parents in Jerusalem set out to change that. This is how the idea of Hand in Hand started, with two preschool classes here in Jerusalem. 26 years later, right now we have six campuses. We have more than 2,000 students. The school has branches in several cities. Do you want coffee? Efrat Meyer, who is Jewish-Israeli, is the principal. She says Hand in Hand creates a different reality. Kids or students are coming here every day get to know each other uh, from a very young age. In the beginning, it's very basic uh, knowledge of each other. And as, the, as they grow up, it's, it's a more um, deep understanding of the different lives that we live in here, the different narratives that we hold. The school is like going to the gym, she says. We practice empathy and understanding and develop our identities together. While most Palestinians in Jerusalem and Israel speak Hebrew, Jews, for the most part, don't learn Arabic. But at Hand in Hand, classes are taught in both languages. Everything is given more context, says history teacher Daniel de Chalit. They learn about conflicts not just from one point of view, but from multiple ones, to see uh, how the same events can be shaped into different stories and how each side could be absolutely sure they are the just one. De Chalit says teaching here has made him a more complete person. It changed my entire identity because when you live and work in this way, it somehow changes who you are. It makes you more human in the way that you can see human beings regardless of their nationality and have empathy with them no matter what side of a conflict they are in. <laughs> Engie Watad is the Palestinian vice principal at Hand in Hand. She shares a joke with Meyer, the principal. Watad says since October 7th, this school has become a rare oasis of real freedom. Many Palestinians say they can be harassed or worse for expressing their anguish over the war. She speaks through an interpreter. For our students, this is a safe place for them, a safe environment. They feel here that they have freedom of speech, that they are not afraid to say how they feel. They're not afraid to share their grief because they've been raised on these values of respecting one another and to um, hold the grief of the other. These administrators say things have been hard since the October 7th Hamas attack set off the war. In fact, they asked us not to interview students because things are so sensitive. But education is all about hope, says Meyer. And we're strengthening the shared values, the possibility for different life in here. And this is something that didn't change. We all want to see a different reality here. I want to see an equal society for me and for Angie together. Palestinian Morad Muna is picking up his twin fifth graders after school. Muna remembers the fear around the first and second intifadas during his youth. He says today is so much worse. Never we have been in this such situation. I mean, never we have afraid like we're afraid now. 
Never we see this is this demolish that happened in uh, Gaza. Never we see this number of victims. I mean, it's totally un unbelievable, and we don't know where are we going. His wife, Ranin Muna, says school is the one safe place for their kids. She says the war is widening the gulf in Israeli society. Yeah, all the time you must to hide your thoughts, and uh, because if you are clear. All the people think about you that you are not correct or not. Uh, like you're probably dying inside when you see Gaza. That's it, yes. Israelis are focused on October 7th and their hostages and soldiers, and Israeli media does not fully show the death and destruction in Gaza. <laughs> Nama Hochstein is picking up her three children. She says they have a different outlook than kids at regular Jewish schools. Being able to see that there are maybe different points of view, and the fact that they grow up with Arabic from a very young age, it just makes it a beautiful part of their identity and existence instead of something they're always intimidated by like most Israelis. Israel, she believes, would be a different place if there were more schools like Hand in Hand. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Jerusalem. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. Coming up in about 15 minutes, signage, an obscure federal manual of road signs and design is getting a rare update with changes intended to protect cyclists and pedestrians. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at TBF.org and comedian Jimmy Tingle in Humor and Hope for the Holidays, Comedy and Politics, December 29th through New Year's Eve, Wimberley Theater, jimmytingle.com. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. As the world prepares to ring in a new year, fighting continues to rage in the Middle East, Sudan, and Ukraine, and leaders are rallying people to face 2024 bravely. In Germany, Chancellor Olaf Scholz is urging his people not to lose confidence in the future. At the Vatican, Pope Francis called on the world to ask, how many human lives have been shattered by armed conflict? How many dead? And how much destruction? How much suffering? How much poverty? Concerns about possible actions related to the situation in Gaza have cities and nations on high alert. In France, 90,000 law enforcement officers are set to be deployed countrywide. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. Nearly 10 million minimum wage workers will see a significant bump in their pay tomorrow, the start of the new year. That's because 22 states plus an additional 38 cities and counties are bumping up their minimum wage. According to the Economic Policy Institute, that adds up to nearly $7 billion per year in pay for those workers. We're joined now by Jeanette Wicks-Lim, research professor at the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So first, Jeanette, tell us about the demographic breakdown of minimum wage workers, the ones who will be earning a bit more in their paychecks now, and which industries do they predominantly work in? Women and uh, racial minorities, you know, Black American workers and Latinx workers are concentrated in lower wage occupations. And so those are the groups of workers that will get disproportionate shares of those raises. So it helps reduce wage inequality between those demographic groups. Usual suspects in terms of industries, low wage industries will be primarily affected alike, restaurant industry, fast food in particular, hotel industry. So more or less the, uh, the service industry. Yes, exactly. So looking at the states that are raising minimum wage, it looks like just under half did so through ballot measures and legislation. The rest were adjusting for inflation. What are the politics behind these kinds of wage adjustments? If you look at, you know, the roughly half of the states that have inflation adjustments to the minimum wage rates, you can see that the minimum wage increases are smaller than what you see when you have something pass on a ballot measure or through some legislative measure. So I think there's ongoing conversation about, you know, what is it that will ensure that the minimum wage is a meaningful labor standard? Do you try to guarantee that it always ticks up with inflation? So at least it's not losing its real value, um, which is what we We've seen with the federal minimum wage, it's you know stuck at 7.25, you know since 2009. Or do you trust the political process to make meaningful changes? What does that tell us? The federal minimum wage is really hard to move. 14 years is the longest stretch the federal minimum wage has gone without an increase. And, you know, we should point out here that there are two categories of minimum wage, what many of us know as a traditional minimum wage and then a tipped minimum wage for workers who depend on tips to supplement their wages. Uh, for instance, in, in Delaware, the minimum wage is scheduled to go up from 11.75 to 13.25, uh, but tipped minimum wage there will remain at $2.23. Why aren't these tipped minimum wages going up? trying to reform that part of a minimum wage law. It's a relatively new terrain. The workers who have been advocating for removing the tip minimum wage, they've had a lot of pushback. I think that workers who have to rely on tips are quite vulnerable to what their customers are willing and wanting to do. And they're also quite vulnerable to what their employers are willing and wanting to do. You know, as you mentioned, uh, the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour has not changed since 2009. 
um, there is a bill attempting to gradually raise that wage to $17 an hour by 2028. Um, if this bill were to pass, what kind of impact do you think it would have on the economy? There was this very big push to get the federal minimum wage and state minimum wages up to $15 an hour. I'm trying to remember the exact year, but I want to say it was like 2015. It was, you know, there were a lot of campaigns and there was a feeling that perhaps that was too ambitious. But my colleague Bob Poland and I did a study to see, well, what would the actual impact be of a minimum wage that high at that time at the federal level, looking at one of the most impacted industries, which is the fast food industry. And what we found was that if we adopted that over a few years, that that was something that the industry could absorb. That's interesting because, you know, we've seen businesses and employers say that if this were to happen, if we were to pay people at least 15 an hour or 17 an hour, this would result in profit losses and layoffs. You're saying that, no, many businesses could absorb this. In terms of its overall impact, what's been proposed, what's been debated in legislatures really are modest increases. And while 17 or 15 might sound large, it's because 725, that federal minimum wage, has been languishing for so long. But it's a wage floor at those levels, 15 or 17, I think, can reasonably be absorbed by businesses without some huge shock to their profits. That's Jeanette Wixlin, research professor at the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thanks so much for speaking to us today. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It was a dark year in international news. Russia's war in Ukraine entered its second year. The death toll on both sides continues to rise. In October, Hamas attacked Israel, and the world suddenly had another war on its hands. From my perch in Europe as NPR's Berlin correspondent, I've watched rising inflation and migration fuel anti-immigrant politics, leading to a surge in popularity for far-right parties, some that aim to dismantle democratic institutions that have been the bedrock of European governance for decades. But through the fog of war, disinformation, and fear-fueled political movements, democracy reemerged in a part of Europe many had long dismissed as a hopeless case, Poland. On October 15th, a record number of voters turned out to toss the far-right government from power, giving democracy a chance to grow again after eight years of a systematic dismantling of the judicial system, the free press, and civil rights. It took nearly two months for the ruling Law and Justice Party to give up power, and the day they finally did, hundreds gathered at one of Warsaw's biggest movie theaters to watch the seven-hour session of parliament that was the party's last stand. They laughed and jeered whenever the camera was on Yaroslav Kaczynski, the conspiracy theory-wielding 74-year-old leader of law and justice, and they mock-cheered when the outgoing prime minister desperately urged the incoming liberal government to keep a path of dialogue open with them. Maria Sovinska was clapping along. When you want to celebrate something, you want to celebrate with people. And we are celebrating the change of government, the change from autocracy to democracy again. Right. Very important for me. And I've been, I've been watching this on YouTube 
since the beginning of the new parliament. So when there was a possibility to come and just celebrate it with other people, that was, I mean, it's incredibly nice and I like it. Watching parliament sessions has become a new pastime for young people like Savinska. The Polish parliament's live stream now has more than 10 times the subscribers than a year ago, evidence that young Poles are closely watching the inner workings of government. A whopping 70% of polls under 30 showed up to vote in the October election. Andrzej Bobinski of the national magazine Politica Insight says just a year ago, only a quarter of young polls surveyed said they felt they had an actual say in politics. Now, after the election, this has risen to 54%. So this is a huge change, and this is a result of the election. And we saw that on the day when they were standing outside the polling stations and up to three in the morning, even though, you know, the results were there and the the local uh, pizza parlor was, was handing out free pizzas to these people. And it was basically a, a street party of people waiting to vote. Bobinski, who has watched Parliament for years before it was cool and its YouTube live stream numbers exploded, has noticed a change in the behavior of parliamentarians in the past couple of weeks. Now everybody wants to talk because they feel that everybody's watching them. So, you know, everybody's signing up and I see the same faces over and over again, just talking without making much sense because they know that they're going to be on television, they're going to be on YouTube. When people care about politics, politicians care about the people. At least they appear to. Bobinski is a realist. He doesn't think this political awakening will last once young people sit through hours of debate about the painful details of rebuilding Poland's democracy from the ashes that the Law and Justice Party has reduced it to. Poland is constitutionally failed state. That's Miroslav Wyszykowski, and he knows a thing or two about the state of Poland's constitution. He helped write it. I first met him back in June, months before this historic election, when it was unclear what would happen to the constitution that he and a dozen other legal scholars wrote following the 1989 democratic movement that overthrew communist rule. Here's what he said back then. I'm feeling like one of the hundreds of mothers and fathers of this constitutional system in Poland. And I'm feeling that my child is dying. Six months and one election later, how does he feel now? I do hope that uh, we started a new chapter of the history of Poland. Wyszykowski says there's a lot of work ahead for the new left-center government of Donald Tusk. For starters, the Law and Justice Party appointed more than 2,000 judges loyal to it through what Wyszykowski calls an unconstitutional process. This will need to be corrected, he says. Alternative is that we will accept what happened. But we cannot do it because of basic foundation of the democratic state ruled by law. So it must be reversed. But how do you reverse five years of judicial rulings by judges who were unconstitutionally appointed? The new Polish Minister of Justice has already started to try. He's removed these judges from the system of random assignments to cases, essentially blocking 2,000 of them from the adjudication process. Malgorzata Gerstorf, a recently retired justice of Poland's Supreme Court, says she's happy with the election result, but that it likely came too late. It's better late than never, she admits. But she says the destruction of Poland's judiciary under law and justice rule, including the Supreme Court she served on, is terrifying and could take years to undo. 
I first met Gersdorf four years ago when she was fighting to keep her job. She was chief justice of Poland's Supreme Court, and the Law and Justice Party was trying to do anything to remove her, including lowering the mandatory retirement age. She finally left on her own terms. Gersdorf is 71. She was part of the solidarity movement of the 1980s and helped build the country's judiciary. She says that fight against communist autocrats was different from today's fight against right-wing autocrats. Back then, she says, the nation was united. We all wanted a democratic state of law. Now, she says, we're divided, and we're being disinformed by state-controlled media that does whatever it can to exploit our divisions. She compares Poland's situation with that of the United States. Who do you think is going to win your election, she asked me, with a visible concern. Europe, she says, is closely watching. Gersdorf believes a healthy democracy requires educating young people on why democracy is important in the first place and how it works. Too few young people understand this, she says. That's why she's devoting her retirement to teaching law and the Constitution to young Poles. Ask her how long she plans to teach. Until the day I die, she says with a smile. At a Christmas market in Warsaw along the old city walls, a university student named Ksenia sells chocolate figurines in a booth sandwiched between Glühwein and Piorgi stands. She says she's happy with the election result. She emigrated here from Russia, and she says the previous government reminded her of her home country's autocrats, taking away rights whenever they felt like it. Because I'm a woman, so uh, previously we had, uh, like, you know, this abortion uh, stuff that, that, and actually in Poland uh, it is not possible to, uh, to do an abortion right now, and I want to have a right for this. The previous government banned abortion in nearly every case, and the new government plans to restore abortion rights. Gerstorf, the retired Supreme Court justice, believes it was this ban that was the final straw for law and justice's rule, because it mobilized women across the country to vote. Ksenia, who didn't give her last name for fear of retribution, isn't sure what the future holds, but she knows this much. We'll see. We'll see uh, how my uh, friend uh, said. We will be as poor as we are now, but we will have rights, <laughs> at least. And having rights, she says, is a good start to rebuilding a democracy. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. 2023 was another deadly year on U.S. roads, especially for pedestrians and cyclists. That's bringing attention to a somewhat obscure document that's often referred to as the Bible of road design. This month, the Biden administration unveiled a new version intended to make the road safer for everyone. But as NPR's Jill Rose reports, some advocates were hoping for more. Matt Keenan was an experienced cyclist. He knew the best bike routes around San Diego. He bought the brightest lights for his bike. But his wife, Laura Keenan, says that wasn't enough. He was doing everything right. You know, he had his helmet on and a wrong way driver crossed into his bike lane and hit him head on. Keenan found out the next morning that her husband had been killed. I then had to get my 15-month-old son out of bed and tell him that his dad was never coming home again. 
That was over two years ago. Since then, Keenan has become an advocate for safer streets. Do you think a, a better road, a safer road, would have made a difference for him? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I'm confident that he would be alive if there was a protected bikeway or if the street was designed to prevent cars from going deadly speeds. Traffic fatalities in the U.S. are up sharply since the beginning of the pandemic. So there was a lot of pressure on federal officials as they prepared to revise the rules of the road for the first time in over a decade. Officially, this document is known as the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices. It runs more than a thousand pages. And while it doesn't get much attention outside of transportation circles, it does have a big impact. It is the most important pedestrian safety document that you have never heard of. Mike McGinn is the executive director of America Walks and a former mayor of Seattle. Since 1935, the manual has set national standards for street signs and road design. McGinn says it's hugely influential on the state and local traffic engineers who design the nation's roadways. The old version really reflected a prioritization of moving vehicles through the community fast rather than the safety of people. Advocates have been pushing the Biden administration to make the manual friendlier to pedestrians and cyclists. More than 100,000 comments came in during this latest round of revisions, and federal officials say they're listening. We believe that this is going to help cities, states, and other communities increase safety on our roadways, which is our top priority. Shailen Batt is the head of the Federal Highway Administration. He says the latest version of the manual has some major changes that advocates wanted. For example, there's a bigger section on how to design bike lanes. And the new manual recommends changes to the way traffic engineers set speed limits. When we built the interstate system back in the 50s and 60s, the predominant thinking was, how do we move cars and trucks? And today, what I think you see is a focus on moving people and reflecting how these roads, streets, and highways are also parts of the very communities that we live in. I think it's a small step in the right direction, but there's a lot more that could be done. Kathy Chase is the president of Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety. We met at a notorious intersection in Northern Virginia, where more than a dozen lanes of traffic converge from odd angles. It's kind of a mess here. It's very dangerous. There's not enough crosswalks, while there are a lot of pedestrians. There are no bike lanes here, barely even a crosswalk. It's totally car-centric. Chase was hoping the revised manual would do more to push traffic engineers away from this old approach. Yeah, it made some improvements. It considered vulnerable road users, pedestrians, bicyclists, more than it had before. But we would have liked to have seen it done so even more, considering the fact that pedestrian fatalities are skyrocketing. Safety advocates worry that the new manual still lets traffic engineers stick with the old ways if they want, even as it's clearer than ever that those ways are not working for everyone. Joel Rose, NPR News, Arlington, Virginia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. It is the morning of New Year's Eve, and that means Boston's about to hold its annual first night festivities. The free family-friendly events kick off at 11 a.m. This year, for the first time, the celebration is based at City Hall Plaza instead of Copley Square. Today's event features ice sculptures, musical performances, a parade, and two sets of fireworks at 7 p.m. over Boston Common and at midnight over Boston Harbor. The Boston Red Sox are no longer in their 
Chris Sale era. Today, yesterday, the Sox traded the former ace to the Atlanta Braves in a deal that includes the Sox acquiring infield prospect Vaughn Grissom. Sale helped Boston win the 2018 World Series, but has been injured a lot ever since. Elsewhere in sports, last night the Bruins beat the New Jersey Devils 5-2. to This afternoon, the Bees play the Red Wings in Detroit. Tonight, the Celtics take on the Spurs in San Antonio. This afternoon, the Patriots are on the road against the Buffalo Bills. It's 36 degrees in Boston, partly sunny skies today, and highs in the upper 30s. For New Year's Eve, tonight, lows will drop to the upper 20s overnight. Tomorrow, for New Year's Day, mostly sunny and temperatures in the mid-30s. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give by midnight tonight at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmidt, and it is time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and our own puzzle master here at Weekend Edition. Hey there, Will. Good morning, Rob. Nice to meet you. Thank you. So, Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Neville Fogarty of Newport News, Virginia. I said, think of an area found in many workplaces in two words. Move the first letter of the first word to the start of the second word. And phonetically, you'll name two items that have a similar use, one of which might be used in the workplace. What place is it? Well, the answer is break room. Move the B to the start of the second word, and you get rake and broom, which are both tools you use to clean with, and a, a broom might be used indoor, like in, a, like in a break room. So this was a very popular puzzle. There were more than 2,700 correct entries, and Chris Yates of Butte, Montana, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Chris. Hooray! I'm so excited to be here. So, Chris, how long have you been playing the puzzle? Oh, on and off for like seven or eight years. If I come around on Sunday, I definitely try to solve it. Very good. And, and, and what do you like to do when you are not playing this puzzle? Well, actually, I'm a woodworker, and I specialize in making wooden jigsaw puzzles, actually. Um, My of all kind things. of guy. I call them the bafflers. I've been doing them for about 20 years. I also help organize a biannual gathering called the Puzzle Parley, which I think Will may have heard of. Yeah. That, um, celebrates wooden jigsaw puzzles with makers, collectors, enthusiasts of all kinds. Wow, I have two puzzle masters right here. Okay, this is excellent. (laughs) So, Chris, are you ready to play? 
Oh, I was born ready. Excellent. I, that, that's what I love to hear. Okay, take it away, Will. All right, Chris and Rob. Every year around this time, I present a new Names in the News quiz. And here's how it works. I'm going to give you some names that you'd probably never heard before 2023, but that were prominent in the news during the past 12 months. You tell me who or what they are. Okay. And here's number one. We'll start easy. Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, Republican presidential candidate. Excellent. Number two is Mike Johnson. Uh, new Speaker of the House. Excellent. Javier Millet. And that last name is spelled M-I-L-E-I. New president of Argentina and dog lover. Wow. You are good. Your next one is Arthur Engoron. And the last name is spelled E-N-G-O-R-O-N. Arthur Engoron. Um, is it something to do with vaccines? No. A AI, maybe? Uh, what if I told you he's a justice, but not of the Supreme Court? I may need some help on this one. <laughs> He's handling a case that, uh, who has many cases right now across the country. Oh, he's um, a judge in one of the many Trump trials. That, well, huh. and, uh, he's a justice in the Manhattan Supreme Court, presiding over the civil trial of the Trump Organization. Try this one. It's a twosome. Justin Jones and Justin Peterson. A uh, pair of Tennessee state legislators that uh, got expelled from the... Uh from the, the body at one point. Exactly, and then they were reelected. Danello Cavalcante, and the first name is D-A-N-E-L-O, and the last name is C-A-V-A-L-C-A-N-T-E. Danello Cavalcante. Oh, gosh, this is a tough one. Um... And so here's some hints. First of all, he's a, a native of Brazil, and he made news in Pennsylvania. Oh, he was—he escaped from the prison, and there was a big manhunt for a while that went, went on for days. Good job. He wow. chimneyed up two close walls, and then he was recaptured after a two-week manhunt. I'm impressed. Good job. All right, now we have a couple of names, and your first one is Titan, T-I-T-A-N. How did Titan make the news this past year? Um, was it the moon of Jupiter? That. No, and uh, and it's no. just the opposite of space. Oh, it was a submersible that uh, imploded on the uh, in the Atlantic, right? That's that's it, and then on the way down to the Titanic. Your next one is a title, Spare, S-P-A-R-E. What was that the title of? Uh, Prince Harry's Memoir. Oh, good job, and the last one, we'll, we'll end with an easy one. Your last one is X. Oh, gosh, what... <laughs> <laughs> what uh, Elon Musk renamed Twitter to. You but... got it. Nice job. I'm impressed. <laughs> Great job, Chris. That was really tough, Will, man. You were not pitching softballs at Actually, the end of the year. Actually, Chris, I thought you did a fantastic job. Um, how do you feel? I feel fantastic. That's, <laughs> that's wonderful. For playing our puzzle today, you're going to get a weekend edition lapel pin, as well as puzzle books and games, and you can read all about the puzzle and its prizes at npr.org slash puzzle. Chris, what member station do you listen to? I listen to Montana Public Radio 91.3 right here in Butte. That's Chris Yates of Butte, Montana. Thanks very much for playing the puzzle. Thank you. Okay, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from Sandy Weiss of Chicago. Think of a famous movie title in four letters. Change one letter and anagram the result to name another movie that came out 20 years later. Then change one letter in that 
an anagram to name a third movie that came out 29 years after the second one. What movies are these? So again, four-letter movie title, change one letter and anagram the result to name another movie that came out 20 years later, then change one letter in that and anagram to name a third movie that came out 29 years after the second one. What movies are these? So when you have that answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle. Click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, January 4th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we will give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thanks, Will. Happy New Year. Thanks, Rob. The secrets to better health may lie in your everyday routine. Gardening, cooking at home instead of eating out, getting to know your neighbors, and just moving around. I sat for two days with a 104-year-old woman who got up and down off the floor 30 times. To kick off the new year, seven habits that researchers say can lead to good physical and mental health. That's coming tomorrow on Morning Edition on your public radio station. Listen on a smart speaker, smartphone, or your good old-fashioned radio. In her new book, The Storm We Made, author Vanessa Chan weaves the complicated and intriguing tale of a family navigating colonial Malaya, now known as Malaysia. A mother trying to find meaning becomes a spy for Japanese occupiers. Her eldest daughter tries to keep her youngest out of the so-called comfort homes, and a son who disappears suddenly into the Japanese labor camps. The horror of wars may be a main character in the book, but it's also the story of what people do to try and survive these horrors. Vanessa Chan joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Rob. So Cecily Alcantara and her family are front and center in this book. Introduce us to them. Yes, yeah, Cecily is a, you know, a bored, dissatisfied housewife in 1930s British Malaya, which is what Malaysia used to be called. And um, she, you know, in her quest for fulfillment or just to find a bigger life, uh, becomes seduced by, you know, a man and an ideology and becomes a spy who ushers in the worst, most violent occupation her country has ever seen during the Second World War. And her children, who are aged between seven and 17, are living with the consequences of their mother's actions during the Second World War, but they don't know her devastating secret. And you tell this story from four points of views, one from each member of the Alcantara family. Why did you choose to go this route? I think it was important to me to be able to showcase each character in their setting very accurately. Uh, Otherwise, it would be, you know, I think more challenging because they're all in different places, both mentally and physically at the time in the book. Also, uh, Rob, I, I think that's the way I process information. This book was always in multiple points of view because I come from a very large extended family and everyone in my family always talks at the same time. So I like to process information as it comes in multiple threads, figure out what's happening and then, you know, bring it all together. And I think that's how storytelling ended up working for me. And it's a great way to tell a story. I mean, when we talk about World War II, we often focus on Nazi Germany and the European theater or in the Asian theater, the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But Southeast Asia is often left out of history books. What don't most people know about that part of the war that you wanted to tell? Everything. 
I think the Pacific theater is, you know, widely unwritten by historians, uh, by fiction writers, nonfiction writers. And that's, you know, for a number of reasons, you know, one being perhaps the more Eurocentric view of the world that uh, historians tend to have, but also just because people in Asia and Southeast Asia who survived the, those times are quite reluctant to talk about their experiences. And so it was important to me to lay down some of these stories that I'd heard on paper because stories, you know, they're just, they're just stories until you write them down. That's the only time they become history. And so I decided it was time for this history to exist. And I wrote down the stories that I heard. Tell me about the stories, because I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talked about your big family. I know that uh, your grandmother was an inspiration for this book. Uh, tell us about her and, and what her experience was during that time. My grandmother was, I think, aged between sort of 12 and 15 during the uh, years of the Second World War and the Japanese occupation. So a very formative time during her life. And, you know, she lived through a lot. She would tell me these stories uh, while I was growing up, uh, both, you know, stories of struggle, how they used to have to mix in tapioca and sometimes even paper uh, into their rice rations to survive about a time where, you know, she was cycling home one day and uh, she felt the earth shake and she just kept going. But it turned out there was an enormous uh, bomb from an airstrike, an unscheduled airstrike that dropped just behind her. So she just made it home. But there were also stories of the hope and joy that people find a way to find during these times. She told us about how she and her siblings cut a hole in the fence so that they could sneak over to the neighbor's house during uh, after curfew hmm. so they could take tango lessons. And my grandma, <laughs> as it turns out, is a very good dancer and she credits her dancing shoes <laughs> to the, that, those lessons she had during the war. <laughs> And I wanted to ask about one of your characters who is sort of a side character, but in some ways is an incredibly important character, Fujiwara, who recruits Cecily as a spy. He's sort of this kind of chameleon-like character becoming who people want him to be. What was the inspiration for this character? So in reality, he is based on a person in history, which people call the Taiga of Malaya, mm -hmm. a general called Tomoyuki Yamashita who uh, led the invasion of Malaya and uh, Singapore during the time. You know, he was a known figure in history, but as with a lot of historical figures, there are gaps. We don't know, uh, you know, whether he was a, a reluctant soldier or, you know, a strong believer. And so I chose to color between the lines and, and uh, write about this charismatic general who believes in you know in Asia for Asians and and a whole new world and he's very idealistic but also quite resourceful and recruits Cecily to try and build this new world together. You know, one theme that comes up often in this book is Cecily's idea that inside of all of us there's a duality of, of both good and bad. And we see this play out in many of the characters uh, that you portray. What, why did you want to dig into that? I think I believe in that duality. I am drawn to characters, uh, both in fiction and in life, who are not necessarily good and bad. I think that morality is a function of one's circumstances, and you never really truly know what you are going to do, how you're going to act, and what sort of principles you have or 
when your principles evolve, when you are, you know, faced with uh, the need to survive. And so it was important to me to show that even when someone has the best intentions or intends to be heroic, faced with dire circumstances, they may make different choices than we would want them to make. You worked for Facebook for six years in public relations. What inspired you to leave that job and to start writing? Gosh, so many things. I think the biggest of all is I am a citizen of Malaysia. And when I moved to the U.S. for college and then started work, I always needed a work visa. And it took me many, many years to be able to get residency in the U.S. and uh, not be tied to an employer. And when I finally got that residency and realized that I could pursue whatever it was I wanted, which was a freedom I had never been able to conceive in my life. It took me another three years to figure out what to do with that freedom. And I finally decided to uh, give writing a shot. I'd always loved to write. I used to write bad poetry to my parents on their birthdays. (laughs) (laughs) And I finally decided to apply to uh, Masters of Fine Arts programs. And I moved to New York City just to give the writing thing a shot for two years. It's been four years, so Uh I think we're doing all right. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're doing okay. That's Vanessa Chan. Her new book is The Storm We Made. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. To find out more about the books and authors you hear on NPR's programs, go to npr.org books. There you'll find author interviews, NPR's bestseller lists, and find out what our staff is reading. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe is back next week along with the new year. Here's to a very happy 2024. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is NPR. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this final Sunday morning of 2023. It is 36 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. Partly sunny today and highs in the upper 30s. For New Year's Eve, lows in the upper 20s overnight. Then tomorrow, a mostly sunny Monday. New Year's Day's highs in the mid-30s. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Disney is very protective of its copyrights, but for the new year, the first version of Mickey Mouse scurries into the public domain. It's Mickey as he appeared in the 1920s film short, Steamboat Willie. 
Is the mouse out of the copyright cage on the next morning edition from NPR News? Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Rob Schmitz. Good morning. The new year is nearly upon us, and with that, a preview of Justice Department investigations into former President Trump, as well as current President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Also, just how much money social media companies may be making on ads to children. And we talked to the director of the U.N. Relief Agency, who's on the ground and under fire in Gaza. The reality is that fear stalks our staff and, in fact, the whole community here because of the airstrikes that are are hitting everywhere in Gaza. It's Sunday, December 31st, 2023. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Gaza's Ministry of Health says it has resumed some care at hospitals in northern Gaza, but as NPR's Jason DeRose reports, it also says it needs to evacuate many people from the enclave for medical attention. The Ministry of Health says more than 5,300 wounded and sick people are facing more serious and complex medical conditions than can be handled in Gaza. The World Health Organization is working to get those people treatment abroad. The Ministry of Health says medical care inside Gaza comes at great risk to doctors and nurses because of continued Israeli strikes near healthcare facilities. Meanwhile, the UN says only 103 trucks with food and medical supplies were able to enter Gaza Saturday, a number it calls woefully inadequate. Prior to the war, each day about 500 trucks brought food, water, medicine and other supplies into Gaza. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Turkey says security forces have detained 189 people in 37 provinces suspected of having ties to Islamic State militants. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports that enforcement operations against both Islamic State and Kurdish militants have escalated in recent weeks. Turkey's Interior Minister Ali Erlikaya announced the detentions in a social media post. He said some of those detained were preparing to attack synagogues and churches, and other targets included the Iraqi embassy in Turkey. The minister said, quote, our fight against terrorist organizations and their collaborators will continue with determination. He said the operation was organized by Turkey's National Intelligence Service, and in addition to detaining the suspects, a significant cache of digital materials was also seized as evidence. Kurdish militants have also been targeted following a bomb attack near government buildings in Ankara on October 1st. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The New York City Police Department is preparing for potential protests during New Year's Eve celebrations in Times Square. Charles Lane from member station WNYC reports. Hundreds of thousands of people are expected to attend festivities in New York City. Police typically form a safety zone several blocks around Times Square and screen people entering. This year, they are expanding that zone and deploying drones to monitor it. John Shell is NYPD's chief of patrol. That gives us a buffer zone so we can move quickly if we have to, like last year. 
and also gives us a, uh, a space between protesters not to come in here. Police estimate there have been some 450 protests since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Most have been peaceful, although New York City Mayor Eric Adams has grown testy recently about the disruptions they cause. For NPR News, I'm Charles Lane in New York. Concerns about possible actions related to the situation in Gaza have cities and nations around the world on high alert. In France, 90,000 law enforcement officers will be deployed countrywide. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston is ringing in 2024 with a slate of activities today. The first night celebration kicks off just after 11 this morning at City Hall Plaza with musical performances throughout the day. You can also ride a carousel, see ice sculptures, and watch a parade, among other highlights. The first round of fireworks goes off at 7 p.m. on Boston Common. The second display will light up Boston Harbor at midnight. For the second half of 2023, undocumented people in Massachusetts have been able to get driver's licenses. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more on one of the year's new laws. Since the law went into effect, the State Registry of Motor Vehicles has issued at least 91,000 new learner's permits and 55,000 new first-time driver's licenses. That's more than double the same period the previous year. State Registrar Colleen Ogilvie says that means wait times at some RMV offices are also up. In the East Coast offices, it's probably in between four and six weeks. We see continued high demand for our Boston Haymarket office, our Revere office, Brockton, Braintree, and Worcester. Ogilvie says to deal with the volume, the state is opening some offices on Saturdays, adding staffing, and increasing the number of driving test locations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. The state is offering outdoor programs for the upcoming winter and post-holiday season. The Department of Conservation and Recreation will host guided hikes, skiing, and ice skating activities around Massachusetts. DCR Commissioner Brian Arrigo says the state also offers adaptive winter activities for people with differing abilities through the Universal Access Program. And this includes adaptive hikes, ice skating, kick sledding, sit skiing, uh, cross-country skiing, and snowshoeing. It's important for us to be a welcoming place and open our spaces for, for everybody. DCR also will lead a number of first-day hikes on New Year's Day across the state. It is 36 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, highs in the upper 30s. Lows in the upper 20s overnight. For New Year's Day, tomorrow mostly sunny and temperatures in the mid-30s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe is off this weekend. I'm Rob Schmitz. The war between Israel and Hamas is continuing into the new year, and aid agencies are regularly facing gunfire while trying to deliver humanitarian assistance to Gaza. That's as famine and disease are threatening hundreds of thousands of people there. Just on Friday, the U.N. agency operating in Gaza said an Israeli tank fired on one of its aid convoys. Tom White is the agency's director. We were moving a convoy out of northern Gaza, and the Israeli army requested that we reroute. Uh, and on that route, our convoy encountered some uh, tanks, and those tanks looks like they fired warning shots. Uh, they got closer, uh, and then they hit the vehicle. Uh, 
so, you know, it, it highlights the risks of, for aid workers in Gaza, but also, you know, highlights the need to ensure that uh, the Israeli army respect the role of the United Nations in delivering aid. We need to be able to do that. And essentially, aid workers should never be a target. And what do you think happened there? Was this a, just a disconnect between different officers at, within the Israeli Defense Forces? or? Look, at this stage, we're following up with the Israeli army and they're undertaking an investigation and we are awaiting the findings of that investigation. In the meantime, we continue to work with them to try and find mechanisms so that we can safely move our teams through areas where their soldiers are operating. Now, fortunately, in, in this case, your staff were not injured, but... Your agency has reported that more than 140 colleagues have died so far in this conflict. Is that mainly from Israeli attacks, or are we looking at also attacks from Hamas or other Palestinian groups? Overwhelmingly, they were in attacks that have come from the Israeli army. You know, a large number of them are killed in these airstrikes, which drop whole buildings on all of the families that are living in these buildings. One of the other incidents that occurred um, about a week and a half ago was a young man driving a UN-marked tractor to a dump site. He was removing solid wastes from one of the communities, was fired upon. The round destroyed the engine block of the tractor. It was then followed up by small arms fire. He had extensive damage to his femur. And he was the young man in that family who was supporting all of his broader family. And, you know, he was in hospital where they're uh, just conducting war surgery after war surgery. And, you know, he was in a lot of pain simply because there wasn't enough pain medication. And of course, this mission of, of, of your staff is to try and get aid into Gaza. What has been the impact of these incidents on, on, on that mission? It's all, always difficult getting into areas that are under fire. And obviously, we've got some mechanisms that we continue to work with the Israeli army to ensure access. But the reality is that fear stalks our staff and, in fact, the whole community here because of the airstrikes that are, that are hitting everywhere in Gaza. Um, so this afternoon, you know, I was speaking to some of our staff who are supporting people in a UN shelter. In fact, it's a, a technical college where there are about 30,000 people now living um, and there was incoming fire to that college last night. And, you know, this has played out time and time again, you know, where there are now hundreds of people who've been sheltering under a UN flag uh, who've lost their lives. Now, about 10 days ago, the UN Security Council passed a resolution demanding the safe, immediate and unhindered delivery of aid to Gaza. In your mind, has that resolution helped? Look, only time will tell on that. There are two major challenges. One is that we need to get more aid into Gaza. And getting aid into Gaza is a very difficult process. It requires numerous checks. Um, it's a very complicated logistic exercise. And then once it's in Gaza, it's you know very challenging. There's regular outages of the communication network, which makes it very difficult to talk with truck drivers and convoy leaders. But there's also a growing desperation in the population. Tom, of, of all the shortages that people in Gaza are suffering from, lack of food, water, you know, basic sanitation, what are you most concerned about? There are a couple of things. One is food. We have 40% of the population at risk of famine. 
We've got hundreds of thousands of people who are living in the open without basic shelter. There's also a major challenge in terms of sanitation. In the shelters we operate, they are carrying two to three times as many people as we anticipated, and some shelters significantly more than that. I was in a shelter the other day. The, the sewerage system just cannot cope. So there was urine and feces flowing out of the bathroom into the schoolyard. Um, and because of the overcrowding, you have people building shelters in the schoolyard. So people are living amongst sewerage. Now, you know, that's a risk, you know, for basic things like watery diarrhea. Now, in a situation where people then don't have access to adequate drinking water for children, that can be a killer. Uh, so there is this, you know, this issue of uh, disease as well. That's Tom White, Director of UNRWA Affairs in Gaza. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. For more coverage of the Israel-Hamas war, go to our website, npr.org. There have been three high-profile appointments in just over a year by Attorney General Merrick Garland. Today, I signed an order appointing Jack Smith to serve as special counsel. I signed an order appointing Robert Herr as special counsel for the... I'm here today to announce the appointment of David Weiss as a special counsel. These prosecutors are looking into former President Donald Trump, the current president, Joe Biden, and Biden's son, Hunter. And all the investigations could play a big role in the 2024 presidential campaigns. To discuss the implications, we're joined by NPR Justice correspondent Kerry Johnson. Hey, Kerry. Hey there. So given the sensitivity of these investigations of two leading candidates for president, remind us, how did the Justice Department get embroiled in all of this? The DOJ has been investigating Donald Trump over documents, highly classified documents that Trump stored at his Mar-a-Lago resort and refused to return. It's also been investigating Trump over the efforts to overthrow the last presidential election. The FBI has been investigating the current president, Joe Biden, after classified documents were found at an office he used in Washington and at one of his residences in Delaware. And then the Justice Department has also been investigating hundreds Hunter Biden's taxes and possession of a gun while he was addicted to drugs. Of course, these are not at all the same level of seriousness. Trump now faces two separate indictments in Florida and D.C. Hunter Biden, who's not a political candidate, faces two other indictments in Delaware and California. And Joe Biden has not been charged with any crime. That sounds like a lot of work for prosecutors. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what makes the special counsels leading these investigations uh, special? They operate outside of day-to-day -day supervision from the Justice Department. And this process is designed for cases where there may be a conflict of interest, where the attorney general might be recused. And they're supposed to operate in the public interest. These lawyers tend to be attorneys who have worked for the Justice Department in the past, sometimes in very high-level jobs. Jack Smith, who's been leading the Trump probe, is a former prosecutor and justice official in the Obama years. Robert Herr, who's leading the Joe Biden probe, is a former prosecutor and justice official in the Trump years, and David Weiss, who's investigating Hunter Biden, is the U.S. attorney in Delaware. He's a holdover from the Trump era, too. So, I mean, with three of them, though, I mean, how special are they? That's exactly what some experts are asking. Their argument is the Justice Department is supposed to act based on the facts and the law, not on political considerations. So why not have regular lawyers at DOJ lead these kinds of cases? Chuck Rosenberg worked for the FBI and the Justice Department. Here's what he says about that. It's almost, in a sense, saying 
that we can't trust an apolitical department to do apolitical work, though in my view, uh, we can and we should trust them to do exactly that. Prosecutors at the Justice Department have handled terrorism cases and political corruption cases for decades. Chuck Rosenberg says the Justice Department has appointed five special counsels over the past six years, and that may be too many. So, I mean, what are the benefits of naming a special counsel supposed to be? Well, one big one is speed. These people can work faster than the normal channels at the Justice Department, which have lots of layers of review. They're also generally focused on one narrow mission so they can concentrate their efforts. The other is the idea that they're apolitical, but that hasn't worked out too well in the recent past. Again, here's former prosecutor Chuck Rosenberg. The attacks on them have been relentless attacks on Bob Mueller when he was special counsel, attacks on Jack Smith today uh, while he serves as special counsel. The people doing the attacking in those instances are former President Trump, his allies in Congress, and some of his supporters. Jack Smith, for instance, has nearly constant security given all the threats. Wow. Yeah, Carrie, you know, as we begin a new year, what do you expect out of these special counsel probes? Two sources are telling me the investigation of Joe Biden for having classified material at his office in his home is close to an end. It's unlikely, they say, we'll see charges there. But the prosecutor is writing a report that we may be able to see in the new year. It's still sure to become a conversation point in the campaign. And as for Donald Trump, he's pleaded not guilty to two federal indictments in D.C. and Florida. His D.C. trial is set for March, but that's on hold while he argues that he should get life lifetime immunity from prosecution because he was president at the time of January 6th. Not clear right now if Trump is going to face trial next year, but these prosecutions have been a key part of his campaign. And as for Hunter Biden, he is now fighting those charges in two different jurisdictions too. And unless he reaches a plea deal, he could be going to trial in a year his father is running to return to the White House. That's NPR's Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson. Thanks, Kerry. My pleasure. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918, and coming up in about 10 minutes, researchers have said for decades that our mammalian ancestors were solitary, but a new analysis suggests they were far more sociable than previously understood. You'll hear that and much more ahead on Weekend Edition. It's 36 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, high in the upper 30s. Tonight, New Year's Eve, lows will drop to the upper 20s. Tomorrow for New Year's Day, mostly sunny skies and Monday's temperatures in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by comedian Jimmy Tingle, playing December 29th through New Year's Eve at the Wimberley Theater. Humor and hope for the holidays. Tickets at JimmyTingle.com. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. Israel's prime minister says governments that criticize his country's fight against Hamas are, quote, blowing hot air. Benjamin Netanyahu is declaring the war will likely continue for many months until Hamas is destroyed. In his televised New Year's address, Chinese President Xi Jinping 
renewed his intention to take over the self-ruled island of Taiwan, declaring that China would surely be reunified with Taiwan. Turkey says security forces have detained 189 people in 37 provinces suspected of having ties to Islamic State militants. Enforcement operations against both Islamic State and Kurdish militants have escalated in recent weeks. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds, working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. What's holding social media companies back from fully curbing content that's harmful to children? After all, the stakes are high. Last month, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn shared what parents told her after she started looking into the matter. Their children had committed suicide. Their children had met a drug dealer. Their children had met a pedophile. Their child had met a sex trafficker. They had been exposed to cyberbullying and had committed suicide. They were looking up ways to commit suicide. One explanation, money. A new study says social media companies, quote, have overwhelming financial incentives to continue to delay taking meaningful steps to protect children. The report comes from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And to find out just how overwhelming those financial incentives are, we're joined now by Amanda Rafool, who's an author of the report. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the numbers. How much money do you estimate social media companies make from the advertising that they deliver to users 17 and under? Uh, So we found that the six major platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, X, which is formerly known as Twitter, and YouTube, all derive nearly $11 billion in ad revenue from U.S. youth under 18. That. That sounds like a lot of money. Um, How does that compare to the other revenue they're making from the other demographics? Well, that depends quite a bit on the platform. For some of the platforms, since they have so few youth users compared to adult users, the proportion of ad revenue overall from minors seems relatively small. But we did find that for some platforms like Snapchat or TikTok or YouTube, a really sizable proportion of their ad revenue comes from youth under 18. So, for example, Snapchat has, based on our estimates, almost half or 41 percent of their 2022 ad revenue came from users who were ages zero to 17. The companies that you're talking about are notably secretive about their data. So how did you come up with these numbers? That's a great question. Um, As we know that social media platforms have no legal obligation to release any types of data on the types of content youth are exposed to, the number of youth on their platforms, or how much revenue those youth generate for them. So to answer our question, we gather data from multiple sources, including business marketing and public data sources, 
Um, and then we use these numbers to conduct simulation modeling. Uh, simulation modeling is a really rigorous method that helped us to estimate the number of youth users and then how much ad revenue is generated from each of them on the platforms. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, what are your takeaways uh, as a researcher and as an instructor of pediatrics from this? Um, well, to our knowledge, this is the first study that offers estimates of how much annual ad revenue comes from users under the age of 18 years old. And in the context of the youth mental health crisis and the associations with poor mental health and social media use for children, I think it's really important for policymakers to take a look at the financial incentives that platforms have to try and keep youth online for as long as possible. And, and what uh, changes or, or what actions would you like to see? I think that this study really demonstrates the need for government regulation of social media platforms because they're very unlikely to self-regulate and curb the harms to minors if they're making so much money off of them. So for me, what I would emphasize is that we continue to advocate for greater government legislation of the way platforms operate, especially in the types of content that they're showing to youth. That's Amanda Rafool of Harvard School of Public Health. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. And if you or someone you know may be considering self-harm, dial 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline or text HOME to 741-741. About a decade ago, police departments began outfitting their officers with body cameras to capture their encounters with alleged perpetrators. President Obama even made body cams a centerpiece of his response to excessive violence against black men. Recently, the news organization ProPublica tried to get a hold of body cam footage from police killings, but in many cases, police departments refused to release it. ProPublica's Umar Farouk joins us now to talk about this. Good morning, Umar. Hi, good morning. Umar, you focused on videos of every police-involved death in the U.S. during a single month in 2022. In some cases, the footage was already out there. Uh, what did police departments say when you asked for the others? In some of them, they did hand it over to us. And a lot of them, they said, um, either because the case is still being investigated, we can't turn anything over to you, or they said because of state laws um, or other laws uh, that were applicable in their area, um, they weren't allowed to turn over that kind of video. And in what percentage of the cases did you not get the video? Um, about a third of the cases, uh, we did not get the video, even a year and a half after the killing had happened. And what does that tell you? Um, it tells us that this whole idea of um, the public being told that body camera footage is going to make everything more transparent it hasn't turned out to be true. And a year and a half after police kill someone, they're often still not willing to show you what their body cameras uh, had captured. So sometimes police said the shooting was still under investigation. And I'm wondering, in your mind, what's the matter with that rationale? It's a very long time for something to still be under investigation. Um, and the danger is that an investigation will be completed and officers will be exonerated and without the public ever kind of being able to see what the evidence was for the basis for, for, for that decision to be made. I want you to bring us back to President Obama's call for officers to wear body cameras back uh, about a decade ago. What was his reasoning? 
Um, his reasoning at the time, you know, it was the case of uh, Michael Brown, a young 18-year-old black man, was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. His death, along with the events in Cleveland, Staten Island, Baltimore, Cincinnati, and other communities, sparked protests and soul-searching all across our country. And it came down to basically the word of the police officers against uh, a bunch of witnesses who had seen what happened. Um, and the reasoning was, if the police officer had been wearing a body camera, um, there would be video from the point of view of this officer that captured everything that could just lay to rest any kind of debate that was going on. The Justice Department has begun pilot programs to help police use body cameras and collect data on the use of force. And so over the next decade, the, just the Department of Justice, we found, spent more than $184 million in grants given out to, I think, around 1,000 police departments around the country. And in addition to that, a lot of cities uh, across the country put money in from their own public budget, $50, 60000000 million for some of the big cities to buy these cameras and, and all the software that goes with it. I'm wondering, did that money come with any strings attached? Like, you know, a requirement that they need to make that footage publicly available or something like that? No, it didn't come with any, any strings attached. Um, and the Department of Justice, you know, has had a hard time putting, you know, conditions on, on different funding like that, not just for body cameras, but also, you know, funding that goes towards police buying, you know, weapons or, or protective gear or other equipment. Umar, you had, uh, in your second article about this, you wrote about the case of Joseph Petaway. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so Joseph Petaway uh, was killed by a police dog in Montgomery, Alabama in 2018, he was sleeping inside a house that he was rehabbing. Uh, he had every right to be there. The police showed up in the middle of the night, sent in a dog uh, without any real reason. The dog killed him. The whole thing was captured on body camera video. And for more than five years now, the family of Joseph Petaway has been trying to have that video made public. Um, huh. They've been allowed in private to view it. They think it's it shows horrendous criminal wrongdoing on the part of the police. And in the Petaway case, what was the rationale from the police department on why they will not release that footage? One rationale was just that there's a blanket state law in Alabama which says that body camera footage is not a public record. And then the other rationale they gave is that what it captures is so graphic and so upsetting that it would cause civil unrest if it was shown to the public. So they're saying like there would be riots if it was shown to the public. So what's the answer then? I mean, if, if you are looking for, there are many groups obviously looking for more transparency when it comes to these body cams. How do they get it? A lot of it's, you know, fighting at the local level or at the state level uh, that needs to be done. And that is happening in a lot of places. For example, California has a state law that says within, I think, 45 days of an incident, every law enforcement agency in the state needs to release video um, unless it has some compelling reason not to. It's an uphill fight um, because as we document in a number of states, laws have actually kind of gone backwards and made it more difficult for the public to access body camera video. That's Umar Farouk. He's a reporter with ProPublica. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. For decades, researchers have studied our earliest mammalian ancestors for clues as to how we evolved socially. 
The thinking has been that those early mammals were solitary creatures, living, foraging, and sleeping primarily on their own. But a new analysis turns that thinking on its head. NPR's Ari Daniel has more. Go back 65 million years to the end of the Cretaceous when the dinosaur's time was nearly up, that comet was about to hit, and our ancestors, small, furry, shrew-like mammals, were scampering about. Nocturnal animals running between the dinosaurs. Karsten Schraden is a behavioral ecologist at the French National Center for Scientific Research, and he says that for the longest time, scientists thought these little mammals were loners. They always had the assumption that our ancestor was solitary living. But Schraden now believes that assumption is wrong. He and his colleagues spent years sifting through field data from nearly a thousand research articles that describe the social behavior of over 200 primate species. New world monkeys, old world monkeys, apes. Before people said, okay, this species is always solitary, this one is always pair living, this one is always group living. But Schroden considered that species can be both solitary and social, and worked that range of behaviors into his analysis, all to find out what was the most likely form of social organization of the mammalian ancestor of all these primates. The result. The ancestor was most likely living mostly in pairs. In pairs which, says Schraden, transforms our understanding of our own heritage. Our ancestors were already millions of years ago were much more sociable than so far has been believed. The new findings suggest the potential to pair up goes back a long time, and that solitary living may be an adaptation to specific environments. The study appears in the journal PNAS. I love to read, you know, a great paper like this. It's it's like a little bonbon in the afternoon. <laughs> Nina Jablonski is a biological anthropologist emeritus at the Pennsylvania State University. She wasn't involved in the research. She says the paper points out these pairs weren't necessarily monogamous couples, simply two individuals cohabitating. It was probably a physically secure arrangement that helped both of them in foraging, as well as help them both avoid predators of various kinds. And perhaps, she says, to just keep warm. Two furry balls curled up beside one another, generation after generation. Ari Daniel, NPR News. So where does the music on NPR come from? If you're asking about the songs we play in between stories, here's one answer. Kids. My daughter sings this one in the house all the time. Later today on All Things Considered, we continue our series on how show directors choose their music. Listen on your smartphone, smart speaker, or radio. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Many people start New Year's Day with an aspirin, or maybe eating a little brunch and then maybe watching some college football. 
But for some, tomorrow will be a chance to do something good for their bodies. Even if the gym is closed, they'll go take a hike. The tradition of what's called first-day hikes goes back more than three decades. It started in Massachusetts, so we invited Julie Martin to talk about it. She's Director of Visitor Experience and Programs for the Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation. Welcome to the program, Julie. Thank you so much, Rob. We're really um, excited to to welcome people. Our staff are, are preparing and getting ready. Julie, I want to go back a little and I want to understand what was the idea behind these first day hikes in the first place? So the idea of a first day hike actually started at the Blue Hills Reservation in Milton. Uh, the park supervisor there at the time, his name is Pat Flynn. He wanted people to recognize that parks aren't just places where people can go and recreate in the summer. So when he was a seasonal worker in, in Ohio State Parks in the 70s, they had a popular program uh, in February where they brought people out to hike and they offered them soup. And he said this would be a wonderful idea to try here in Massachusetts. So in 1992, he started first day hikes and ran a program and almost 400 hikers came that day. And shall we say the rest is history? And walk me or hike me through this. Uh, what do folks do on this day and, and how big has it gotten? The hikes have grown substantially. So in the spring of 2011, uh, Priscilla Gygus, our then director of state parks and now our deputy commissioner for conservation and resource stewardship, brought the idea to other state park directors in the Northeast. And they loved the idea and they decided that they were going to challenge all of the state park directors in all 50 states to offer a first day hike. And on January 1st, 2012, 400 hikes were held across the country as part of America's state parks first day hikes. Wow. And now, now these hikes tend to be, I understand, on the short side between one and three miles. And now is that, is that to appeal to more the casual hiker? Yes, it is. It's really a, an idea to welcome hikes for anybody. So it could be families, it could be individuals, and they're all guided and led by staff and really to help people feel comfortable with um, being out on our trails and helping them to perhaps uh, come out on, on first day and then they'll feel comfortable going on mm -hmm. our trails alone. And they make sure that the hikes are safe for everybody and they lead them and they make sure that there's a sweep person at the end to make sure nobody's left behind. And then they help with making sure everybody gets a nice warm cup of hot chocolate at the end of the hike. So if listeners wanted to take part in a first day hike tomorrow, how could they find one nearby? They could find one by going to our website, mass.gov slash DCR. And if you're outside of Massachusetts, you can check out stateparks.org and that lists all of the, the hikes across the nation. Julie Martin, Director of Visitor Experience and Programs for the Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. As 2023 draws to a close, Boston is getting ready to celebrate with First Night. The family-friendly New Year's Eve event began in 1975. This year, for the first time, the focus is on City Hall Plaza instead of Copley Square, which is undergoing construction. Today's free event features a range of attractions, including musical performances, ice sculptures, a parade, and two fireworks shows, one over Boston Common at 7 p.m. and one at midnight over Boston Harbor. Starting at 8 this evening, the MBTA is free on all modes of transit, and the T says it will hold many commuter rail trains at North and South Station after midnight. A pizza institution in Stoughton is closing its doors today. Danino's has been in the same family for 68 years. This past week, customers were waiting in line for hours to get one last Danino's pizza. It's 36 degrees in Boston, partly sunny skies today and highs in the upper 30s. Tonight, lows will drop to the upper 20s. Tomorrow, a mostly sunny New Year's Day with highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. On this week's Wait, Wait, Weird Al Yankovic explains how he came to cast Daniel Radcliffe as himself in the movie he made about his own life. The first time I saw Harry Potter, I thought, you know, someday that guy's got to play me. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Weird Al plays himself in this week's show, as does Gina Davis, Karen Allen, and Instagram's Huddest Lobsterman. I, however, will be played by Stanley Tucci because the studio insisted on a name. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. People's lives can be fascinating, funny, weird, and enlightening. And if you want to understand someone's experience, read a biography or a memoir. NPR's Books We Love has about 70 suggestions from the past year on its list. Today, a few of our colleagues are here to help you start 2024 off on the right page. Hi, I'm Glenn Weldon, and I'm a host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, and I'm recommending Sure, I'll Join Your Cult, a memoir of mental illness by Maria Bamford. Now, Maria Bamford is a stand-up comedian. She's the best in the business, as far as I'm concerned. She talks openly and hilariously about living with mental illness and all the therapies and 12-step groups and meds that she's tried over the years, some of which have helped and some of which have really, really not. Uh, She's out here confronting the stigma surrounding mental illness and exposing the hypocrisy of that stigma and its pointlessness. And everything that makes her so good at stand-up is just radiating from every page of this book as she walks us through the various cults she's joined over the years. Now, her definition of cult is broader than yours. Some of her examples are, for example, show business is a cult and her family is a cult. Ultimately, this is a book about the need to belong, uh, the need to improve oneself, 
and needing to make a space for yourself um, that's safe. And I'll say this, anytime a book is written by a performer and they read the audiobook, you just owe it to yourself to get the audiobook. It's great as it is here. I'm Ashley Brown. I'm a senior editor on All Things Considered, and I'm recommending the book Thicker Than Water. It's um, the first memoir from actor Carrie Washington. She's known for her role in the TV drama Scandal. Celebrity memoirs can be inherently tantalizing, especially when they're written by a famously private famous person like Carrie Washington. But I'm not sure many celebrity memoirs contain revelations as shocking as what Washington learned and then subsequently shared about her own family history in the book. Uh, very mild spoiler warning here in an uncanny example of life imitating art. Washington writes about some of her lived experiences that actually mirror the plot lines in some of her on-screen roles. And she's already spoken publicly about the big revelation in the book. But even if you haven't avoided full spoilers for it, I think her candor about forgiveness and building resilience after multiple traumas is still worth the read. And she also offers insight and wisdom about the craft of acting throughout the book. My name is Megan Sullivan, and I'm a senior editor on the Culture Team and the chief books editor at NPR. The book I'm recommending is Sunshine by Jared Krasoska. I was really excited to read Sunshine because I had read Hey Kiddo. That's Krasoska's graphic memoir about growing up with his grandparents. Sunshine is also a graphic memoir, but it centers on a time he spent as a teenager working as a counselor at a camp for seriously ill kids and their families. He was one of just a few students chosen to volunteer at the camp, and it was kind of a motley crew. They didn't know what to expect or how they could make a difference. And the experience ended up making a huge impact on him. What I love about this book is that he's able to use words and images to really bring you to the camp with him. He forms lifelong connections to some of these kids and their families. It's really a coming-of-age story where you learn to see happiness and hope in the moment, and you see how much your actions really can matter. I'm Emily Bogle, and I'm a senior visual editor at NPR. I'm recommending Congratulations, The Best Is Over. Our Eric Thomas's latest essay collection focuses on the absurdity of midlife. He returns to his hometown of Baltimore after his husband takes a new job, despite Thomas having a self-described, quote, toxic relationship with the city. Thomas chronicles how he and his husband work hard to establish friendships, while he also feels out of place in his own hometown. Thomas's incisive and hilarious essays are about the pains of starting over and navigating life as an adult. In one of my favorite essays, he weaves together his love of Oprah's favorite things with his own experiences with depression while seeking therapy. I love this book because it's a heartfelt collection that will have you tearing up and howling with laughter. What was behind Prince Harry's decision to step back from royal duties? How bad did his relationship with his father and brother get? What was the deal with the frostbite in that very sensitive area? I'm Melissa Gray, senior producer at Weekend Edition, and while I know the answers to these questions after reading Harry's memoir, Spare, I am here to say don't pick it up to satisfy that kind of curiosity. Instead, read it for a well-written coming-of-age story about a boy born in a fishbowl who has to overcome the world's most famous dysfunctional family in order to become his own man. 
Harry's words about his teenage grief over his mother's death and his personal growth during and after his military service is, on its own, a compelling story within a story. Kudos to Prince Harry's ghost writer, J.R. Mowring, for making what could have been another floppy book about the British royal family into one satisfyingly good read. That was Weekend Edition's own Melissa Gray, who suggests Spare, Emily Bogle with Congratulations, The Best Is Over, Megan Sullivan with Sunshine, Ashley Brown recommending Thicker Than Water, and Glenn Weldon with Sure, I'll Join Your Cult. For even more ideas, you can find the full list of books we love at npr.org slash bestbooks. What happens when a woman trying to forget her traumatic past falls in love with a man who isn't able to remember anything from his? The new film Memory explores our perception of the past and its consequences in the present through just such an unconventional love story. It stars Jessica Chastain and Peter Sarsgaard, and Peter Sarsgaard joins us now. Welcome to the program, Peter. Hey, thank you for having me. You know, I was struck by how you portrayed your character in this film, Saul. He's a middle-aged man. He's suffering from the early stages of dementia, and we see him struggling to remember you know, common daily routines like where he is and, and what he's doing. How did you prepare for this role? Well, I'd known people with dementia. My uncle, Bubba, had dementia. So dementia is as unique as we all are. Each case is a little bit different. There's a doctor, Dr. Peter Whitehouse here, who's a neurologist, put me in touch with some people that have dementia just over the phone because it's awkward to study someone's affliction in person, I suppose. Right. And um, I was really struck by all that they could do. And that was something I really wanted to explore in the film. Yeah, that's interesting because I think, you know, many listeners may have family who've suffered from dementia and they've probably seen many films where the portrayal of that condition is much less subtle. It's more, you know, exaggerated maybe or violent. But your portrayal of Saul shows a far more subtle and I would say probably realistic approach to someone suffering from this condition. In fact, in a few scenes in this film, your character seems pretty self-aware and tries to make light of his condition. Here's one of those scenes. The usual for you? Hmm? The usual? Oh, yeah. Oh. What's the usual? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know. No. Do you remember her? No. <laughs> Okay. I don't think I know her. But you do remember that the food is good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's uh, Peter Sarsgaard and his co-star Jessica Chastain in a very poignant scene in the film. You know, describe your approach to this. Were you aiming for kind of a more realistic portrayal of this? It was important to me to do that because there are people that really have the condition. And if we sit around and watch movies that are mostly about the later stages of dementia, most of the movies that have been made, then um, it's not reflecting back our real own reality. And I thought that was important. And uh, Dr. Peter Whitehouse, actually, when I was working with him early on, we both talked about that quite a bit, that I wasn't going to be dementia. The character was not his condition. You know, one of the things that he pointed out early on is he said, you know, everyone has dementia the day before they're diagnosed with dementia. We live with people that are in cognitive decline all the time, 
and don't limit their activities. You know, just call them absent-minded or they irritate us. And I really wanted to lift that veil. The one thing when I was doing a little research on this, I've read that you grew up playing soccer, but that you quit after suffering concussions. Is that true? That is true. Yeah. I had what's called a repetitive concussion syndrome in college. It just got to be where any amount of contact, I would get a, a concussion. So I stopped. I didn't actually think about that very much when I was playing the role. And my uncle actually, who had dementia, I attribute to the fact that he played center for LSU and that he boxed and he did a number of other things that everyone knows are not good for you. Yeah, because I was wondering if that may have motivated you in taking the part or preparing for the role in any way, now that we know the connection between concussions and some of these conditions. I mean, what really motivated me in terms of taking the part was the opportunity to play someone that really just wanted connection. There are a lot of movies about revenge. There are a lot of movies about all kinds of things that are the darker parts of humanity. And I love that what my character wanted was so pure and that the thing that was in his way was not just his own condition, but this woman's trauma, which made it difficult for her to be with anyone. And there's a scene in the movie where she tells me her trauma and I ask if I can write it down and she says yes, you know, so I can remember it. But of course, I don't think I look at that book very often. So it's really playing someone who doesn't put someone else's trauma on them every time he sees them. So I loved all the strengths of the characters and what he wanted specifically was what drew me. That's really interesting. I mean, your co-star, Jessica Chastain, plays Sylvia, and she has a memory of, of terrible trauma from her background, and she you know, has worked her whole life trying to put that aside and forget it. How did you two go about portraying a believable-looking relationship when one person in that relationship cannot be as fully involved in it as the other one? You know, How did you, as actors, get around that? Well, we barely spoke which is one interesting thing that really? happened on set. I mean, we really barely spoke, yeah. We would say hello in the morning. We were civil with each other, but 98% of the talking happened through the language that's in the film. We actually didn't even talk about the scenes that much before we shot them. Was that a conscious decision? It wasn't for me. <laughs> it wasn't for me. But um, And I don't know that it was for Jessica, but when she talks about it, it makes sense in terms of her character why she was like that. I felt sometimes like um, someone trying to like break into a bank, you know, like crack a lock. I knew that I was with somebody that needed to be cared for, that needed to be thought about all the time, that needed to be treated a certain way. And it was like that when we were filming. And I think it helped. You know, the relationship is not the greatest love story of all time sort of love story. It's the kind that happens all the time in our lives, the sort of slightly compromised ones. And that's what I was struck by, too. You know, I was also struck by how director Michel Franco filmed this story. It opens at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting where Sylvia is celebrating 13 years of being sober. She lives in a pretty gritty part of New York City. It's above a tire shop. There's sort of this melancholy feel to the work that matches some of the darker, deeper themes in it. 
it's not this neatly packed and presented film with a lot of Hollywood polish. It's messy and it's sort of true to life. Was that part of the appeal when you were reading the script or you know, is that something that Franco brought to the film after you signed on? Oh, I knew his movies. I knew what I was getting into. I knew everything about the way he filmed. You know, Michelle doesn't really shoot any coverage, which means the camera he puts in, quote unquote, the right place in the scene. And the whole scene plays from that angle. And sometimes there's not even very many takes. You know, there's scenes in this movie that are one take or we shot the rehearsal and he goes and looks at it and says, we have it. What that does is that gives you freedom because you don't have to match coverage into the close-up. And he's saying that's what he wants. He's saying, show me real time. Like when she goes to the bathroom while we're watching the movie, he said, go to the bathroom. You don't have to literally go to the bathroom if you don't have to go, but go through all the time that it would take to go to the bathroom and then come back. He wants the tempo of the movie to be familiar, to be like life, I guess. And it felt like that as a viewer, you know, I, I know I like a film when I'm still thinking about it the morning after watching it. This was one of those films. It's powerful, but I would say it's not an easy film to watch. It progresses naturally and it demands a lot from the viewer to follow what's going on and to make discoveries. Yeah, he wants you to participate as a viewer. We meet in the middle. This is one of those films where the tip of the iceberg is visible and that we all imagine what is up with the rest of it. And um, one of the things, though, that I found that's been pretty amazing from its reception in Venice on, you know, I love watching it with audiences, and I typically will sit for the last 30 minutes. And I love that collective feeling, emotional feeling that happens at the end of this movie, because it's not despair. It's actually something like real, genuine hope. And not only did it receive a warm reception at the Venice Film Festival, but it got an eight-minute standing ovation. I can't even imagine what that must have been like for you. Well, you're trying to figure out when it's over. I mean, first it feels great, and then you start to worry about them, you know. <laughs> it's an eternity. It's long enough so that we turned to each other and I said, is it our responsibility to end this? <laughs> like, do we need to leave? That's Peter Sarsgaard. He stars in the new film, Memory, which will be in theaters Friday. Peter Sarsgaard, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Happy New Year from all of us here at NPR. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Rob Schmitz. Support for NPR comes from the station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. 
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR. Start 2024 with WBUR tomorrow morning. You'll catch up on all the latest news from around the world. Also, you'll hear about the first version of the iconic cartoon character Mickey Mouse now entering the public domain. That and much more tomorrow on Morning Edition. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by comedian Jimmy Tingle in Humor and Hope for the Holidays, Comedy and Politics, December 29th through New Year's Eve, Wimberley Theatre, jimmytingle.com. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times and they require serious journalism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. So make your year-end contribution by midnight tonight at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.